So um, we're going to continue our talk on beware of your traditions. Amen. So we'll start with our verse in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 8. This will be our cornerstone. Um, it says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So that, this is what we are teaching against is these traditions of men, the empty philosophies that cheat us out of what God has for us. Amen. So, Father God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you to break open the bread of life to us, feed your people manna from heaven. We thank you for the hidden manna that has been set aside for us, Lord God, and we receive it from your hand. We thank you for your light that dispels darkness, um, that uproots every every wrong thing that has not been planted by you, Lord God. We just thank you for uprooting our false ideas and uprooting those traditions that steal from us and make the word of God of no effect. And we just thank you. We commit these things to your care in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So, so as we read in this, um, we have to be aware of deceit. Um, that is the enemy's weapon against us is deceit. He perverts what God has made for us. He turns our good into ugliness and he, he seeks to devour us through deceit. Um, he, um, through our deception and he uses human tradition to do that sometimes. So human tradition is a thief. It can easily lead us astray. Uh, it takes a story of God, of the gospel and perverts it into religion of do's and don'ts. Um, and, and, and it promises blessings for those who do and curses for those who don't. It, it just binds us up in a way that nothing else does. And, um, and he, God warns us against that. Jesus warns us against that. We read, um, as just as a recap from last week, we looked at what tradition is. It's a transmission of customs or beliefs from generation to generation or the fact of being passed on in this way. So it's something that's passed on that you believe, whether it's a doctrine that comes from the word or not. It's just believed, but it's held in that position. The Bible doesn't say that traditions are evil, just like money isn't evil, but if it takes the place of God in our heart, then that's where there's a problem. That's where it becomes idolatry. And we looked at how the traditions of the elder took first place over God's word. Um, And Jesus uh, called it out in Mark 7. So we're going to just look real quickly at Mark 7, um, just as a recap to see where we left off. So in verse 6, it says, Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, whoever reviles father and mother should surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained of me as Corbin or a gift to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you have done this in many things. So Jesus in this passage, he makes a progression. He said, you left the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You reject the commandment of God and establish their tradition. And you make void the word of God 
and um, and by the tradition that you've handed down. So you hold on to um, the tradition and wander away from the word. So you see how that progression happens. First, you you take it into yourself. You you grab it instead of grabbing God's word, and then you establish it in your heart as truth. And and it causes you to uproot and and reject God's word that you that you have, and then you pass it on to others as truth instead of passing out the word of God as truth. So it's a poison that really um that really hinders our growth in God. We can't live out of our tradition. We have to live out of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, we're going to look at uh, James chapter one verse twenty one. In the message translation, it says, throw all spoiled virtue and cancerous evil in the garbage. Okay, these are your traditions, okay? In the simple humility, in simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word and making a salvation garden in your life. So he is the husbandman. He is the gardener. He's the one that's laying the foundation, and he's there to help us uproot. Now, but he does need our faith. He needs our cooperation. When he brings these things to our attention, that, you know, when we're when our tradition is challenged by God's word, he says, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to move that chair? <laughs> you know, are you going to leave it in there and let your life get tight and let your life get old and stale? Um, when he confronts us with these things, um, it's for us to repent, change our mind about it, let go of it, release the grip of uh, that we have on unfruitful things uh, that we've held on to. And then we say yes and amen to the truth of God's word. We say it's truth for me. You receive it as your own. Okay. So that's our life in Christ is a continual life of transformation and repentance, right? Because it comes from a truth that sets us free. So as we come into uh, the truth of God, we have um, this revelation that comes in and sets us free. And the, the grave clothes keep coming off. You know, we are Lazarus, come out of the grave, and and sometimes he uses teachers to pull off those grave clothes. Sometimes he uses brothers and sisters in Christ, and sometimes it's a, just the word of God himself coming in and stripping off those things that keep us bound. We're alive, but we're bound up in grave clothes. So that's what our life in Christ, we're continually letting those dead things fall off of us, okay? So... Jesus must become our central focus and not our religious traditions. We can't cling to the form of godliness that denies the power of God. Okay. So in Second uh, Timothy 3, um, verse 5, um, starting in verse 1, he's talking about um, the last days being difficult times and all these people are going to be lovers of self and, and everything. But in verse 5, it says that these people hold to a form of godliness, although they deny it although they've denied its power. So you're denying the power of God access, okay? You have a form that looks religious, it looks godly, but it's denying God's uh, resurrection power in your life, okay? So this is this is uh, the stubbornness that comes with tradition. So I'm going to, most of the, the night we're going to look at this account in the Gospel of John um, that actually is a picture of Jesus confronting tradition. And um, it's the healing on the Sabbath. <laughs> it's one of the many healings on the Sabbath. But this is out of John 5. Now, in John 4, 
um, we saw the Samaritan woman, you know, and this was like the one, first of all, she's a woman, she's a Gentile, and she was the one that Jesus actually told her, I am he, you know, I am, I'm the Messiah that everybody's waiting for, I'm the one. And so she, he actually revealed himself to her and her testimony it um, ignited a revival in Samaria. So, so he's just coming off of, you know, I've got meat that you all don't know anything of. And, it, and this is like, he's coming and built up. Um, he went from there into Cana where um, the nobleman came and said, come and heal my son. And he said, go, he's healed. And that very moment he was healed. So he was coming out of this success and he came into Jerusalem for the feast okay so this is where we're starting so he's all stirred up and and happy and um and then we're we're going it says after these things after the things I just told you about um there is a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in verse one verse two and now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in the Aramaic called Bethesda which is also it's translated house of mercy which has Five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, going another steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now this was the Sabbath day. (laughs) So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. So, so here, right here, we see the tradition challenging the healing word of Jesus immediately. Okay. And the healed man answered him, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Jesus had already hidden through the crowd. The man who had been healed did not know who who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, in verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these works on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here it is, tradition is persecuting the living word of God. Okay, so this, this uh, we'll, we're going to go step by step through this. And I didn't realize this t- till just now. In the King James, I think it gives you more um, explanation about this pool. But it says that um, at a certain time, an angel would go into the water and stool the, stir the pool. I didn't realize that this version didn't have it in there. But um, but that was the tradition. Okay. And so uh, let's start in verse 1. First of all, it's the feast time. It's supposed to be a time of celebration and remembering God's goodness to his people. And then in verse 2 through 4, uh, we're at the Pool of Bethesda. So I found some historical things about the Pool of Bethesda. 
it is a five-sided hole um, in the ground full of water. So it's a pool, and, it, and it's got five sides that have the porches for people to sit on. And it, so people, it was a multitude of people around there. It was only accessible by stairs. It was located by the Sheep Gate of Jerusalem, which was used to access the temple with sacrificial lambs. So it was very close to the temple. The origins of the Pool of Bethesda goes back to Hellenistic period in Jerusalem. The ancients, the ancient Greeks had a cult for pagan god named Esclepion. Look, it's called something. <laughs> Esclepion. I think it's A-S-K-L-E-P-I-O-N. And so there was this pagan god of healing and in, in that empire, they built up these healing centers to this God. And in that empire, and it included Jerusalem, was part of the Greek empire. And those who were ill would visit these centers and bathe and drink the water and sleep inside the walls. And if they did this, this God or his serpents would possibly visit the ill in a dream and give them hints about their healing. Okay, so this is this belief surface. This is the belief system, and it was his serpents that were turning the waters of the natural pools and the springs, and that that belief system carried over into the Judaism that Jesus was a part of. Okay, so it was it was not um, it was not anything that was in scripture. It was it was this Hellenistic belief. It was a Greek belief that this God would stir up the water and give you hopes for healing. It doesn't say that anybody was healed, but it gave them a hope for healing. Okay, so the Greek influence in Jerusalem meant that these pools were in the city were a popular spot, spot for the ill or the disabled to visit and stay near. They believe if they could enter the pool when bubbles and ripples rose up from the surface, that was the best time to receive a miracle. So the people were gathered because of the Greek religious tradition, not because of faith in God's word. Because God had already promised, I'm the God that heals you. And, and so, so here it is, they, they had picked up this other tradition in favor instead of God's word. So the pool in the King James, it says a great multitude of impotent. Okay, so the word impotent means weak, feeble, without strength, and powerless. So the crowds of people that lined the area, they were lying on the porches. All these people were disabled in some way. They were blind. They were maimed, um, crippled, missing their feet and legs. That's what the lame means. They were maimed, crippled, missing their feet or their legs. Or they were paralyzed, which also the word for paralyzed, it was wasted, withered, and dry. Okay, so consider the hopelessness in this place. So even though it's a pool of Bethesda, it's supposed to be a house of mercy, and it's just surrounded by all these broken, crippled, powerless people. There were These were not people of minor ailments. These are people that could not have gotten to the pool by themselves. They were broken. They were all dependent on others to carry them in. They were powerless people waiting for their tradition to bring them what they needed. There is no reason for us as covenant people to be waiting around for permission for anything that God has provided for us. Okay. So that is not, this is not what we look to. This is, this is not a picture for us. Um, the tradition is that the angel will go in and trouble the water 
And the first one in the pool when the water was troubled was the one that got healed, right? So this is, again, nowhere found in Scripture. It comes from the pagan beliefs. Um, Peter calls it cleverly um, devised fables. You know, it's all these these different wives' tales, you know, that this is what's going to work. There's no assurance that the angel has ever shown up. And according to the crippled man, there had been some movement in the water, but we don't know if it was angel. We don't know if anybody got healed. Um, but there is, there's just no way to know. These traditions and fables have just enough religion in them to hold people's attention and to make people loyal to them. Um, so if they have any faith at all, they're going to put it in the occurrence instead of putting it in God. Jesus said, have faith in God. Don't have faith in an occurrence, okay? And that's why religion is so cruel, because it works on your desperation. It works on your desperation and your desire to receive a miracle. So you desire to receive from the supernatural, so you look to these supposedly supernatural things to get what you need. And and it always leads you just into disappointment. It always leaves you wanting. It's like a carrot in front that you can never get to. There is no mercy and no compassion to make a blind or a lame or a crippled people try to race into the pool. Okay. I mean, just think about it. These people couldn't walk. They couldn't see to get to the pool if they wanted to. If they heard that it was rattling, they couldn't see to get themselves there. And so now it's like religion is like, okay, first one in gets it, jump, you know, and it's like you're seeing all these broken people trying to run and get it. It, a religion tries to offer, in tradition, tries to offer a shortcut to receiving from God, but it actually paints God in a cruel and withholding light. This is what tradition does. It's like the serpent in the garden that says that, uh, well, God is withholding from you, and he knows that if you eat this tree, you know, you'll be like him. And, you know, he blinded them to the truth that they were already like God, okay? So, But Jesus came to show us the Father. He's not showing us a cruel God that doesn't want to help us. He said, your Father knows you have need of these things. He, he healed all who came to him believing. Jesus did not say, I'm run out of healing, only the first three. I'm, I'm praying for everybody else. You'll have to go home wanting. He, he healed anyone who came to him in faith. And he said, um, he gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. He is not withholding anything good from us. We can be healed at any time. Healing happens when our soul is converted to the truth that by his stripes we are healed. Okay. So there is no short of it, shortage of healing in the kingdom. There is no lack at all in the kingdom. So continue to verse 5. A God, um, the gospel introduces this certain man who has been sitting by the pool for 38 years. He's established in his position of being sick and waiting with no result, right? So now in verse 6, here comes Jesus. So all these people are waiting, and here comes Jesus. Um, and he, Jesus asks him the question, do you want to be healed? The strength of tradition often comes from the fact that we don't challenge it. We don't investigate. You know, sometimes we've been waiting and sitting for so long, and then you forget that, oh, yeah, I really want this. I want to be healed. And so it takes, you know, sometimes we believe things, and we we never question why we believe what we believe. And that's what causes that tradition to stay strong is because we never investigate, never find out why is it that we believe like this? Why do we believe that 
God wants to prosper us? Why do we believe that he wants us healed? Why did we believe that we have a good hope and a future for us? You know, and why do we, you know, just any any tradition and pattern that we have, if we don't recognize why we do it, then it just becomes an empty, vain tradition. So this, this um, let me go back because I'm going to get lost. Sometimes <laughs> we have been sitting in tradition without questioning it for so long. We need to ask the question, what do you want? Is this going to get me where I want to go? Jesus asked the sick man sitting by the healing pool in the house of mercy, do you want to be healed? I mean, it seems like it should be obvious, you know, and but you think of, you know, I've heard it said about like people who um, the number one, you know, uh, Benny Hinn has a healing ministry and his number one prayer request is for financial needs. You know, as there's people who have healing needs and they're not reaching out for that, you know, so Jesus has to want you to express your faith. He says, do you want to be healed? And he's he's he doesn't care how long you've been sitting there. This man has been sitting here for 80, 38 years and he doesn't care how long he said, do you want it? And you can have it now. So this is this is where it is. He's given him an opportunity for his miracle. And I looked it up in the mirror translation and it says Jesus saw that this man had been there for a very long time and he asked him, Would you like to be made well right now? So this um the word the Greek word is in the present active indicative indicative um form. I mean or ver whatever. Tense. Yes, it's in that present active indicative tense. So it's he's not asking, would you like to someday be healed? He's asking him, do you want your miracle right now? And um, so this is this is your resolve, your desire. Do you want it right now? In the King James, the translation, it does. He, Jesus isn't saying, do you want to be healed? It's saying, will you be made whole? Right. So um, we can look at that in the King James if you want to. Um, in the King James, it says, will you be made whole? I think that's verse six. And he says, um, it says, will you let something happen on the inside of you to bring wholeness and completion to your life? OK, he's not just asking, do you want to feel better? He's not asking, do you want me to re- alleviate some of your symptoms? He's asking can I restore your health? Can I bring you wholeness? Right. Um, in Luke 17, I, we're not going there, but it, Jesus, it's the story of the 10 lepers who come to Jesus and they all seek him, say, saying that they want to be healed. And he said, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they realized that they were cleansed. The, the one recognized that he was healed. He came back to Jesus and thanked him. And um, and Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. So there's a healing that comes to end the disease, but the wholeness comes to bring restoration to everything that the disease stole. So if it's a, if you're a leper and you're healed of the disease, that means you're not going to continue to be corrupted in your skin and, and in your body, but now you're going to get your fingers back. You're going to get your skin back. You're going to be fresh and new. That's wholeness. So when he said, will you be made whole, the word um, made is ginomai, ginomai, and it means to become, to arise, and it's also translated to be married to. So you're coming into the wholeness, okay? You're being married to that wholeness. Will you be married to this wholeness? Will you be rise to this place of wholeness? The wholeness um, is hugies, hugies. 
And that, that word means sound. And um, it implies soundness of body, soul, and spirit. So it's a restoration of your physical health, health, but it's also a, um, it's also teaching that does not deviate from truth. That's what the the Strong's dictionary has. This word "sound" is it's for like sound doctrine. It's teaching that does not deviate from truth. So Jesus, when he said, "Will you be made whole?" he was also saying, "Will you let me change your doctrine?" Do you, will you let me change how you're thinking about things? Because he's surrounded by all this tradition, the religious tradition of the Jews and the religious tradition of the Greeks. He's surrounded by he, And Jesus steps in and says, will you let me change your doctrine? Will you let me change the way you're seeing things? And Jesus, will you let Jesus teach you the sound way to think and believe that in a belief that doesn't deviate from his truth? Okay, so there there are things that are deviating from his truth, and so that he comes in and he says, I want to correct these things in you. And a lot of times, if Jesus can teach you the right way to think and believe, it'll manifest in your physical health and in in the the natural things in your life falling into place the way they're supposed to. Everything else gets straightened out when you get your your thinking and your belief system about it right. It's like what we were talking about in uh, Jeremiah 17. It's this is this just grabbed hold of me all the time, so I always go back to it. But when you put your trust in the arm of the flesh, you don't see when good comes. But when you put your faith in God, you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers, and you don't cease from bearing fruit, even in heat and even in famine. You're always going to be producing for God. You're always going to produce fruit in your life. So Jesus came right into the midst of their blindness. Think about the pool now. He came into the midst of their blindness, to their paralysis, their hopelessness, their disappointment. And that was the fruit of their wrong believing. And he offered hope and help and strength. Okay. He extended his yes to them and he was waiting for their amen. Okay. So he came to the man. He said, will you be made whole? And he was waiting for him to say, Amen. It's mine for me now. But the man didn't answer Jesus's question. Instead, he gave him an excuse. The sick man answered him and said, sir, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. And when I'm going, someone else steps in in front of me. So this answer came from a place of self-pity and hopelessness and disappointment. He was used to it not working. And so when Jesus comes and says, it's time now, come get it. Is your disappointment going to dictate whether or not you re- you receive it and believe it? You've been disappointed so much, I'm not willing to hope again. And Jesus wants us to hope. He wants us to believe his word. Um, so the the hopelessness, the self-pity, and the disappointment, that's the fruit of our vain tradition. This is what produces what our vain tradition produces. When God brings his word, and his solution to your problem, check the voices in your head that are arguing with it, okay? Every excuse that jumps up in your mind why you aren't healed, okay? Well, because of this, because of this, why you haven't gotten your breakthrough yet. These are strongholds that keep us bound, right, and keep us weak. So the Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, in the Message Translation, we use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God. That's what we're talking about, tradition. 
every fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. So we're we're causing ourselves by by rejecting and smashing down those things. We are allowing ourselves to be conformed into His image and into His life. The voices of tradition can come from religion that we've picked up along the way, but it also can be a belief that we've picked up by our own disappointments, by our own mistakes, the things that we've messed up on, um, and our own fears, our own insecurities. They'll speak to us, and they'll argue with God's word in our heart. The impotent man makes the excuse, I have no man. In the face of the man... Christ Jesus, <laughs> he is the man, and he's saying, I have no man. He doesn't see when good comes, right? So Jesus is always the solution. He is the man. He is our ever-present help. In uh, John 4:26, um, Jesus says, I am he. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. I am he. He's the answer. So when the man responded the way he did, Jesus just answered him with strength. He he answered the man's weakness and infirmity and doubt with a command of strength. And he said, get up, take your bed and walk. Right. So in Romans uh, 10, 17, it says faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So when we hear that command of faith that comes from the, the Lord Jesus Christ, it ignites a faith on the inside of, of, of us that stirs up that resurrection life inside of us. It gives us the ability to respond the way that, um, so he said, get up and take up your bed and walk. That gave the man the ability to take up his bed and walk. That command of faith um, enabled him to be able to do that, right? So, Jesus' command of faith immediately healed the man. He stood up, picked up his bed, and started walking. And keep walking and keep walking and keep walking. You're supposed to keep walking. The command of faith confronted the religious tradition of the Jews and the pagan traditions um, to liberate this man. So the whole tradition about waiting for the angel, Jesus' command, don't, get, don't wait, get up, and you're healed. He also confronted the Jewish tradition of not healing on the Sabbath day. And he, he said, I'm healing him anyway. Be healed. Get up and walk. Okay. So this man had been sick for 38 years. And immediately, instead of rejoicing with the man, the Jews came and confronted him and said, why are you carrying your bed? <laughs> why are you carry? It's illegal to carry your bed. Not like, oh, my gosh, you're walking. That's so awesome. You know, no. You're carrying your bed. It's the Sabbath day. Don't do that. And so this man, instead of rejoicing in his whole, no, in his own healing, he wasn't even protective of that healing that he had just received. Instead, he kind of cowered by that intimidation. He said, um, that guy told me to carry it. You know, he didn't, he didn't even mention the fact that he had been healed. He said, that guy over there, he, well, he healed me, but he's the one that told me to carry the bed. But he didn't, he didn't know who Jesus was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd because that's how he do. And, um, so he has slipped away and, but the man had, um, he was kind of in cahoots with the Jews there, right? Because he was like, Hey, it wasn't me. It was that guy, you know, now I, I'm remembering there's another story where Jesus healed on the Sabbath and it was a, um, a man who was born blind 
And then the Jews came and said, who was the one that healed you? And then, and then he went to his parents and said, he can answer for himself. You go talk to him. And, and he was saying, Hey, all I know is I was blind. I can see now. And why do you want to know who he is? Do you want to go follow him? Or it's like he had a little bit gumption to defend his own healing. This man didn't have that same question inside of him because he had been under that tradition for so long. He kind of, just succumb to it, right? So in verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple, okay? And he went and sought him out and he said, see, you are well, sin no more. And so, you know, my pastor made a point of saying, it's funny that he went to the temple to tell him to stop sinning, you know? It's like, it was that sin of religion. It was that sin of unbelief um, that he was holding on to. And, and he said, he said, sin no more so that nothing worse will happen to you. Okay. In the mirror translation, it says, a little later, Jesus found him in the synagogue and said, see, you have become whole. Do not continue in your distorted mindset. Then nothing worse will happen to you. So it's important to see your wholeness and not your distortedness. So you don't see yourself in the from the point of view that you had before as a sick, weak person, you see yourself from the position that God sees you and he says you're made whole. Okay. So the word sin is, um, harmatano, harmatano, and it's like the harmatia word, but it basically, ha from negative and meros meaning form or portion. Okay. So ha is like the negative form of the, of the negative on top of the um, word portion. So it's a negative portion. Okay. So he's basically saying um, you to be without your allotted portion. So that's what you're talking about, the distorted identity. So, so you're made whole. Don't hold on to this portion that's not allotted to you. Okay. So look at your wholeness and not what you used to believe about yourself. Amen. Amen. Okay. So now this man, so after Jesus confronted him, instead of following Jesus, he went back to the Jews and he identified Jesus as the one they healed him on the Sabbath. And he joined in their accusation. It opened the door for more persecution to come to Jesus and his ministry. Okay. And this reminds me of the parable of the sower, right? So Jesus was, was, you know, the sower sows the word. And he was talking about the four different kinds of soil. And when he was talking about the parable of the sower, he, he said, he said, the seed is the word of God. And, um, the sower sows to the four different kinds of soil. And in Matthew 13 verses 20 through 21, it talks about, um, he who received the seed on the stony places is the one that hears the word immediately, receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself, and it endures only for a little while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And that's what this reminds me of with this man who was healed by the pool of Bethesda. I We don't know what happened to him except that he did go over and turn Jesus into the Jews and said, he's the one that's healing on the Sabbath, you know. And so he's joining in their accusation. We don't know if he was able to remain healed. We hope, we want to believe that he did. But Jesus did warn him to stop sinning so that nothing else w- would happen to him. You know, he wouldn't hold on to this distorted idea of himself. 
but God is forever faithful to us. Traditions are the stones that keep our keep God's word from taking root in our life, right? Those rocks, those ideas, those fears, those mindsets that we've picked up along the way, they fill up our our soil and when the word wants to take root, it bumps into something and dries up. Okay, so when when our gardener God <laughs> comes in and starts going through our plot and pulling out these things, you know, let him do it. Let him do it. And don't hold on to things so tightly, you know, that you lose everything. It's like you you love not your life unto death. Right. So you love not these things that you have built your life around and step into his life and his newness of life. That he has for us. Be willing to repent of your distorted beliefs and distorted identities. Say amen to what he offers us because he only has good things in store for us. Amen. Amen. So amen. That's what we have tonight. Father God, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you for your kindness and for your goodness to us, Lord God. We just thank you that you care enough about us to lead us in the way that we need to go. You are our shepherd. And the voice of another we will not follow. We just, um, we just bind and silence every voice that is not coming from you, Lord God. And we just thank you to, to make those tongues uh, cling to the roof of their mouths, Lord God. And so that your voice is the strongest voice we hear. And we will hear your voice. We will follow after you. We will follow after life and life more abundantly. We thank you that you lead us by rivers of living water, Lord God, that we do not have to fear our future that we do not fear when heat or famine comes because you are our source and our supply. And we trust you, Jesus. We thank you for all the good things that you have in store for us, that we get to see you. Your revelation brings us life, that we are transformed as we see you. We thank you that we get to see you face to face every day, Lord God. We just thank you that we do not put it in the future as a faraway thing, but we say yes and amen to it now, that we can see you now in the day-to-day, now, now time. And we bless you for that, Lord God. We thank you for your great grace being upon us. Thank you for our safety, Father God. Thank you for our pastors as they travel, Father God. Thank you to bring them home safely, nothing missing and nothing broken. Thank you for filling them up to overflow um, as they feed on your word, Lord God. God, and I thank you, Father, for the good things that you have in store for us as a church and as a people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we'll see you Sunday. Thank you.